This is Jason Albert, and you are listening to Nordic Nation from Faster Skier. In this episode, we hear from U.S. Ski and Snowboard's High Performance Director, Troy Taylor. Since 2015, Taylor has been guiding the suite of teams at U.S. Ski and Snowboard. Taylor plays dual roles, uh, primarily as a sports scientist, but also as the organizational wizard that keeps all the moving parts in order when it comes to building better sports science programming for the organization. Taylor, originally from England, has been part of elite-level sports science in Canada, the U.S., and his home country of England, and he first worked for U.S. Ski and Snowboard leading up to the 2006 Olympics in Torino, Italy. We spoke to Taylor on July 25th from Park City, Utah. Okay, here's Taylor. Sure thing. Uh, I'm originally from the south coast of England, actually, uh, from a town called Bork. Town called Bournemouth uh, on the south coast of England. Um, so that's where my family's from. Uh, I kind of went to university in London, then did my uh, postgraduate degrees up in up at Loughborough um, in exercise physiology. Uh, started working for a, a university there, uh, at the University of Birmingham, and uh, after the Athens Olympics in 2004. Um, a job came up with the U.S. Ski and Snowboard team originally. Um, and so I, uh, I, I threw my name into the hat and uh, badgered them into giving me a job and uh, started in 05. So I worked for a couple of years uh, with the team leading into the Torino Winter Olympics and through that games, um, which was a cool experience as a, a young exercise physiologist, um, getting to travel um, extensively, uh, mainly with the Alpine teams. Um, and go to the games there in Torino. Um, and then uh, headed back to England for a couple of years. London got awarded, obviously, the London Summer Games. And so I've worked across Summer Olympic uh, and Winter Olympic sport. And so I kind of went back, uh, took a senior physiologist job uh, over there in England, uh, did it for a couple of years, and it became pretty clear that, number one, I didn't like the weather in Britain to live there. Um, for, uh, extensively anymore and two um, I was looking for opportunities to advance and it was clear that no, no one was leaving before London and, and sort of in the positions above so I, I kind of started uh, maybe having horizons to maybe move uh, back out to North America um, and actually got a job uh, running Canadian uh, science and medicine or science at the time and then we developed a medicine department uh, in Toronto uh, for a Canadian Institute for Sport up there. And, uh, yeah, did that for six years, close to, leading into sort of 2015. They had the Pan Am Games in Toronto in 2015. Um, and so I had a, a great run up there and sort of grew a team and got to open brand new cool facilities and do a lot of awesome stuff. Worked with their rowing team for the London Olympics and then oversaw and managed a bunch of different Olympic teams and sports science and medicine staff. And then in 2015, thought that maybe uh, it was time for a change. And position came up at US Ski and Snowboard as uh, my current role as the high performance director. Um, and so I'd loved working over here and my limited experience, like in a couple of years that I had sort of leading into Torino. It's, you know, I love Park City. It was a great place to be. So it seemed like it'd be an awesome time to come back. And so that's what I did. Okay, because it's funny, I was thinking when you were describing where you, 
you know, being in England, moving to Park City, you know, before Torino, and then moving back in some capacity, I was like, oh, that must have been a real shock in terms of weather. So you kind of answered that question. Uh, high, high mountain desert, high mountain desert to England, so like high mountain desert in Utah and 300 days of sunshine to go back to, uh, I was working in Wales in Cardiff, which is an amazing place, but it's definitely wet there 300 days a year. And so, yeah, yeah. it's just, uh, you know, there's many elements. I, I love living back there and miss family and friends and things like that. But, uh, yeah, I, I really love nice life in, in, in North America generally, but particularly now back in Utah, West, West coast-ish yeah. west side yeah, of the sure. it's, it's pretty awesome so i am curious from like you know looking at this like big picture perspective um and now obviously you're focused more on like snow sports and helping those particular athletes and all those disciplines at u.s skiing snowboard to uh sort of achieve whatever goals they have but you know how much do you have to kind of reboot at each situation you've been, been in and each sport you're working with. So you mentioned rowing as well. Um, how much of it is simply like you're applying general basic principles about sport development and enhancing, you know, helping each athlete uh, improve? Um, you know, how much of it is just like, yep, this is applicable here. And you don't have to spend the next like six to eight months or a year kind of reformulating say specifically for cross country or for moguls um yeah yeah i think uh uh, i I don't know maybe i'll get to a percentage but i think there's an element the human body is the human body and the way that it adapts is the way that it adapts um but all of those adaptations are unique and individual and there's idiosyncrasies across individuals in the same sport or across different sports and so i think the underlying principles of training and of building relationships and of of sort of uh, overarching principles are consistent across most sports and so i think there's, there's definitely consistency there it's not like you know completely transferring fields and like a cross-country skier has nothing in common let's say with a rower um, it's not, it's not, there's nothing, nothing that's the same, but in that same space, I would say the first one to three years and probably still now, and probably for the rest of my career that I work in skin, you're, you're constantly learning and evolving and adapting to a different environment, to different sports, um, for understanding those specific sports and the, and the specific demands of those. And, and you're really trying to match the demands of what you know it takes to you know be really successful in that sport, both you know physiologically from my kind of academic background, but more from a holistical, technical, tactical, psychological, physiological kind of overarching sense, and trying to match what the sport requires with the person who's in front of you, and they bring a unique skill set, unique physiology, unique you know mental approach, and so you're always trying to adapt those two, and that's like a constant process. Um, I don't think there is a, a like a point where you like I know it all and or I'm uh, you know I figured this sport out. I think you certainly evolve and you learn more about it, but that's a, an ongoing process. So I'm still very much in that. Um, while there's some principles that are the same. I'm thinking specifically you know, your comment about like the person that's in front of you and what type of longitudinal kind of metrics might you keep on an athlete? Let's compare, say like Alpine skiing and cross country skiing. What sort of data might you start tracking for a particular athlete from, you know, 
they're say they're just a high performing junior athlete through their world cup career what what types of metrics are you looking at sure uh i think it it starts let's you know take a, a you know a high school junior um you know good alpine skier i think we're trying to look at it from a, you know a multi-dimensional standpoint as i said you know technical tactical physiological psychological social emotional kind of side and so you kind of take it from different pieces um on the technical tactical side, you know, uh, certainly you know, Sasha and Marion, who are men's and women's development coaches, are, are doing scouting reports. They're looking at particular aspects of a turn and how they're turning, uh, more qualitatively, subjectively, but trying to make sort of um, understandings about what's a good turn, what's not a good turn, how their weight distribution is, how they're edging calf, and all of those particular metrics. I'd say we are very qualitative in that right now. It's tough to get objective markers in most of our sports on that stuff. Of course, country coaches and you know Brian Fish and the team and, and are probably doing same things about the way people are skiing. Um, we'll do from the physiological side. We have a, a national testing battery. Um, it's taken on different forms and names over the years. The medals test way back in the day. Um, we had a physical testing CD. We about three years ago launched uh, Skills Quest Fitness, which is I would say an across sport um, assessment of general fitness and movement capacities um it's not i would say sport specific while it's sport relevant to all of our sports um it's not like designed intentionally for one particular sport and that we're looking at a broad range of physiological aspects from you know estimations of vo2 max through a bleak test type kind of environment through to you know lower body uh, mobility stability and control through single leg squatting through to some upper body movements in terms of, you know, just ability to do pull-ups or push-ups um, through to more anaerobic capacities or short-term kind of fitness levels like uh, uh, a 60-second box jump. And so we're trying to get this broad parameters um, that we'll get on, you know, we've got about 5,000 people in our database, 5,000 results over the last few years. Um, we're certainly expanding that um, out. Um, and we'll track that uh, through and out an athlete's career. So while they may do it two or three, four times as a junior, um, at least once a year now with senior teams, we'll be starting to get most of that data, uh, particularly within our alpine teams, but um, expanding that across other sports as time goes on. But that, while that gives us a general estimation of you know, how fit a person is um, and requirements around there, and it gives us some individualization in terms of the physical properties we're looking at, aerobic fitness versus anaerobic fitness, and how we're progressing, it's not massively helpful in a prescriptive sense in telling us intensity to train at or, or that level of detail. And so once we get national team athletes will kind of come in to us, uh, we'll run through something we call U-Start, which is the U.S. ski team's uh, athlete readiness to train. U-Start, great acronym, um, which is a, a movement assessment competency kind of uh, screening process which isn't used from an injury prevention standpoint, but is used very much to help our strength and conditioning coaches, our athletic development coaches, our physical trainers, our athletic trainers, um, to know where to program someone. Um, and so while we don't longitudinally track that, it's certainly a, a metric that we take um, initially and, and then subsequently every year to understand where people are at from a programmatic sense. And then we'll start collecting more detailed um, data related to maybe um, step tests on bikes where we'll be looking at, you know, incremental graded exercise tests, taking lactate heart rates, RPEs, um, and plotting, you know, 
training zones, A1, A2, um, threshold and, and sort of interval training stuff off of that. We also do a fairly extensive with all of our team um, force plate uh, testing battery um, that we track throughout their careers. So to understand from a performance point of view, measures like strength, power, impulse, uh, concentrically, eccentrically, uh, maximally. Um, but also we use that a lot in uh, sports with uh, both an injury prevention and injury re- rehabilitation standpoint. So we're trying to understand, you know, uh, what does it take or how strong does someone need to be in a good sport to perform? But also, you know, what, what was your baseline data? If you do get hurt, um, where do we need to get you back to? And do we start to understand relationships between potential uh, physiological parameters, strength and conditioning parameters, and the likelihood of injury? Um, and so one of the things we pull out of that in some of our sports is um, you know, asymmetries, particular metrics within left-right imbalances and differences becomes a precursor um, if you want to go down a, a hill at 80 miles an hour or you know, do a 60-foot big air jump or whatever, whatever our particular case is. We've been able to associate some of those. It's not cause and effect per se, but we're certainly understanding the relationship a bit better between those and trying to mitigate the likelihood of those happening. So uh, I guess it starts at relatively young ages with broad um, metrics, uh, some of which we've tracked throughout an athlete's career. And then as they come into the national team through to sort of the Olympic level, getting more specific on, you know, how does this information, yes, help us track longitudinally, but help us program to understand where the athlete needs to be uh, to get their best performance. And thinking more specifically of how you might interface with a specific team. And since we're obviously cross-country focused, if you are over a 12-month cycle, and say normally, like the cross country, you know, the training logs start in earnest, uh, say in May for a Nordic skier. You oversee the entire suite of programs at US Ski and Snowboard. You know, gosh, you know, snowboard, alpine, um, and all those sub disciplines, Nordic skiing. So there's a lot to sort of keep in handle on. How do you interface with the cross country team and ensure that you have a good gauge of sort of Everyone there is, you know, up to date on best practices, but you're not getting sucked totally into that cross country void, if you will. Yeah, yeah, it's it's a fairly similar approach with most of the teams. Obviously, there's there's one of me. Um, I'm extremely fortunate that within our science and medicine and a high performance team at US against Newport, there's approximately twenty. Um, athletic development coaches, physical therapists, sports scientists that, that work you know, daily with each of the teams and each of the athletes. And so they along with their sport coaches, are the primary contacts for information and for relationships and for um, sort of that go-to uh, service that the athletes and coaches need. And so, so they, they're the people that we're interfacing on in every single day. Um, in my role, I try, you know, I, we, we go through planning processes in April, um, you know, where we reflect and debrief all of the sports scientists, all of the sport coaches will come in, athlete feedback in that in terms of evaluations and, and where we're going uh, with the sport and what worked well and what didn't. We, we do that every April after the season, map out what the big areas and topics that we're working on, um, you know, what are the big focuses for both this year and sort of this quad. And so we'll sit down with Chris Grover and Jason and Matt um, and Gus and Bernie and, and all of those, those guys and girls and sort of run through the program and map out the specific things that we want to achieve. 
Um, and then in that process, Tashana Schiller, who's their uh, athletic development uh, coach and, and our athletic manager, um, you know, the specific areas that we're working on, um, you know, we want to introduce a new power cycle at a certain point of time or um, we want to, we know that Beijing uh, Olympic Games are going to be at a slight altitude, probably 15, 1600 meters, very cold. We don't typically compete in that, that environment that frequently. What are the strategies we need to build out over, over the next couple of uh, years to sort of best prepare our athletes? Um, and so we'll map it out in terms of that sense. Uh, Tashano and, and team will be sort of the primary point of contact. And then I try and t- touch in with each of the teams sort of two times during the prep period and one to two times during the competition period. Um, more to just uh, check in, make sure there's anything, everything that's going on track that we plan to do. Um, and, and, and generally to try and be a resource of help. Um, and, and just sort of show my face and show that I care um, from that kind of perspective. And so, yeah, that's, that's the table works out. There are, you know, we have seven different sports. Um, I do prioritize my time around, um, you know, certain sports and certain times, depending on what's happening in them and where, where I feel I personally can be the biggest value add. Um, but I'm, I'm extremely fortunate that, that the team um, is the biggest value add. Um, to the athletes and the coaches, mine's more more to pull from maybe some experiences in different sports in different countries, uh, suggest some different ideas that that maybe are not within that additional sport, and then a little bit of um, more I guess uh, horizontal scanning of of where the sport or sport is going, um, and try and cherry pick some ideas. So I think as Gus talked about, um, you know, we did. Uh, a workshop this year to bring together um, you know, club coaches and national team coaches that with national team athletes and sort of share and cross-pollinate, uh, I guess, which is an idea that myself um, and Luke Bodensteiner, you know, we saw in Norway, saw in Norway a few months before and try and cherry-pick some of those ideas and contextualize them to our environment. So I do a fair amount of that, um, sort of cherry-picking uh, the best pieces that I get to see around the world or have experienced and bring those back. That's where I probably add, if I do add value, that's where I add it. How much is simply improving like an entity like US Ski and Snowboard and, you know, trickling down to like an individual's performance? How much of that improves just by basic in, enhancing basic communication and and I asked that question because I know that you folks had that conference this spring where, um, you know, you brought in, uh, as I understand, like all the coaches that uh, coach U.S. ski team athletes, you know, from the from the D team through the A team and just communicating and talking about best practices. Obviously, I feel like that's that's a great thing, but I'm kind of curious, um, what are your thoughts on that? Because it seems like such a simple remedy, but it takes a long time to sort of manifest on the ground in organizations, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, I think I think we're trying to tackle from both ends. Like we're trying to think, you know, you know Jason Cork and team are trying to think on specific things for Jeffy, exactly how we can optimize her performance this year with her. You know, how, how, do, we, how do we help her in each of those every races and identify some of her strengths to maximize so the sort of sustainable competitive advantages? How do we minimize her, her, her relative weaknesses compared to competition? So, so I think there's a lot of work that happens at that end. Um, but, you know, the reality is the, the tweaks that you're making at the national team level are relatively minor. We are not 
turning, you know, um, also rounds into Olympic champions just by, you know, the amazing coaches and support teams that we do. It's the, the system as a whole that is developing athletes over the long term that is our sustainable success. And so I think it is a pivot, um, maybe for the organization, certainly my experiences, um, working in sort of Britain and sort of understanding their sort of approach um, as they got London Games, or mainly on the summer side, but sort of de- investing in development um, and sort of systems um, to do that, doing the same in Canada. Uh, they have a program called Next Gen with government funding to do that and trying to take some of those approaches to sort of, hey, this is awesome and, and we need the world's best coaches working with the best sports scientists, the best opportunities for sure, that we can't let or take our eyes off the ball there. But the reality is, is we, we need great athletes coming into the system. Um, and, and the way that I think we do that is by, number one, we have incredible resources across this country in all aspects of skiing and snowboarding. Amazing club coaches that are coaching sort of incredibly well. Um, but maybe, you know, in some instances, siloed. We're a big country. Um, it's not easy to get together and talk. Um, maybe we haven't been as open as possible. And I don't know, US skin snowboard sort of, um, I guess, leading the way in that openness. And I think, so, I think there's so much uh, cross-pollination and learning and opportunities that can be harnessed uh, by us sharing our collective experiences, um, which, well, yeah, it's not, is that going to change, you know, exactly the way that someone trains, you know, today or tomorrow? Maybe there'll be small tweaks. Um, but it's, uh, I think, a start of a motion that over, you know, two, four, six, eight years, you're going to get a lot more athletes that are getting a lot better training. I am kind of interested in how you incorporate, you know, as a high performance director overseeing all of these sport disciplines, how do you incorporate sports psychology into what we traditionally think of as high performance, which would be the metrics testing like, you know, box steps, how many box steps can someone do in a 60 second interval? You know, how do you incorporate sports psych into what you practice? Yeah, I think it's, uh, it's an absolutely integral part. I think men- mental health, sports psychology, mental performance, um, it sort of takes some different names in different, different places, but uh, is, you know, as everyone says, is, is critical. I think it's always been a part of our program um, since I worked here in, in the early 2000s. But we've already had a sports site program. Um, so we had expert consultants that have been available to our athletes. Um, and, and I think we, I think there's been a realization in the last, let's say, decade, maybe more in some sports, less in other countries, um, but of the role to play that in a proactive sense, that there are, everyone has mental health, number one. Um, you know, in the same way that everyone has health, everyone has mental health, good health, bad health, we have, we have good and bad and to be very proactive in terms of our mental skills training and opportunities to enhance and develop that and train the brain like we do train the body. And so I think, you know, while we've had that program for a number of years, I think we are looking to, um, let's say, beef it up uh, a little bit in the last couple of years. Um, And so we have, you know, uh, we're very fortunate through the USOPC uh, to have a full-time sports psychologist, Alex Cohen, uh, based in the COE. Um, in Park City who works across a number of our teams. We also have a number of uh, consultants that are on sort of a small retainer contract for our athletes to utilize. Um, much like coaches, there's different personalities that gel with different people, different skill sets and experience that fit or don't fit. So try and have a range of services over there. Uh, but the intention and goal for us is that's absolutely integrated into any other support services, uh, whether that's strength and conditioning or, or nutrition, 
uh, we'd have the same conversations and the same aspects about that, both to be a resource to coaches, um, to help them how they can sort of better connect with their athletes and understand that and take care of their own mental health and also direct to athlete support and the mental skills that we can help teach them that coaches can reinforce and, and, uh, and sort of uh, emphasize as they're training. In terms of specific metrics and tracking, that's always been a challenging one. I think uh, there's certainly aspects to understand that. Uh, the paper that I sent you, which is sort of not published yet, uh, collaboration with the University of Utah, uh, through uh, their USOC, USOPC Med- National Medical Network. It's looking at sort of uh, some of the psychological characteristics around burnout and grit and sort of it's, it's survey-based self-assessment uh, questionnaires. Um, and I think they're a useful tool. They have some challenges. They're not perfect. Um, but there's very few metrics, as much as physiologists may like to think they are, there's very few metrics, regardless of their physiological or psychological, that, that are perfect. Um, but I think it's uh, a start and an attempt. I think there's a really interesting space in more in neuroscience, um, bio-neurofeedback, understanding brainwave activity, um, sort of more quantifying um, for the physiologist. It kind of like, you like to see those hard numbers. I think there's movements towards that. I think they're still in the infant, uh, infancy, um, but I think there's more, more and more research and opportunities to kind of gather that kind of piece. Um, and so we kind of integrate it in terms of there. I don't know if there's, you know, in the same way that there's no one physiological makeup that's perfect for cross-country skiing, we know you need to have a big VO2 max, but we also know that VO2 max is not distinguishing probably between, you know, let's say the top 30 skiers in the world. In the same respect, there's no mental performance that's sort of the model that has to be um, or mental, mental strategy. But there are characteristics that we know that the best athletes have, and so it's trying to develop those and track them both quantitatively and qualitatively over time. Um, and so we, we try and plot those out and, and understand that and sort of, sort of use it. I, I don't see it as any different to any other high-performance service um, that, that we would offer. Um, it needs to be fully integrated. It needs to be an important part of the program, and it needs to be tailored to the individual athlete coaching program and what's going to work for them. Yeah. Do you th- I mean, it's kind of a slippery slope here when you, you know, I'm thinking of like, oh gosh, you know, applying a quantitative score to someone's like, Oh, you know, they scored this on the grit scale, or I assume we're like pretty far away from like having a battery of scores that truly helps us understand an athlete. And is that sort of a good assumption because the human being so complex or are we a lot closer to that than I think? And I hate to sound so reductionist because it's a human being, you know? Yeah. Yeah, we, we love that. I don't know if we're, you know, anywhere of truly understanding, uh, uh, you know, athletes or people as a whole, and, and it, they, we are massively complex. But I do think there are tools, psychological tools, that can help us understand athletes better, um, knowing that they have their limitations, but knowing, you know, grits are, it's, a, you know, Angela Duckworth, and, and it's got some research behind it, but it's also got some, you know, uh, some challenges with it. But it's, it's a tool. And I think if it's used to a tool to understand and to help develop aspects, then it could be really useful. Uh, we use another one called the Athlete uh, Intelligence Questionnaire, AIQ, um, which is uh, more about visual spatial processing and how people learn sort of uh, process information and what their strengths and relative weaknesses in some aspects are. And, and, but it's not used to this as like ever a selection tool for us. This is about a developmental bias. It's helping us 
our coaches and our support staff understand and the athletes understand themselves better and our support staff to understand the athlete so we can coach them better. Know that, you know, if someone's uh, simple would be, you know, if someone likes a massive range of options or just a couple of options, you know, do they want a yes, no response or do they want a one to 10? And, and, you know, that's, you know, there, there are, I think, reasonable evidence bases that people have more dispositions uh, to those. They're not fixed. And it's not always this, this response. But knowing that someone might be more that inclined, um, okay, then that might be, might be a way that we can coach them better rather than telling them, you know, we've got 20 skis to test. We give them our two best ones. Um, or in alpine skiing, you know, you don't give them every possible line. You give them, give them one or two. And I think it's, that's how we try and use those. And so, yeah, I do think there are psychological tools that can help us better understand athletes, but they are tools um, and they're not perfect. Um, and we, we, we don't use them as like the only thing we use, um, but I think they can help inform the picture. They're a piece of the puzzle. Do you think sport performance and, you know, like your job, high performance would eventually develop you know because there's lots of different coaching manuals that you can get from u.s ski and snowboard it's like okay here's the development progression for you know teaching skiing you know cross-country skiing specifically it's kind of what i would be familiar with but coming to the point where you have a kid or you have a a 20 year old athlete and they have a psychological makeup like we all do that's kind of innate and it's malleable in the context, you know, they're growing up in a specific environment. There's lots of inputs from different people, but getting to a place where, okay, hey, here's a manual on like how to enhance grittiness in an athlete, you know, and that might be part of what, say, a US ski and snowboard has on offer as well for coaches, you know, not just like how to coach up that kinesthetic piece, but here's something to help uh, club coaches and university coaches coach up that psychological piece. Does that make sense? It, it does make sense. I'm, I'm going to add my uh, standard disclaimer. Not, my postgraduate degrees are in physiology, not in psychology. So while I oversee the department, I don't want to step outside my scope. But I, I, you know, I do oversee it, so I'm, I'm not, not going to comment on it. But I just want to put that out there. I'll just yeah for sure. PC Alex Cohen for more details, um, or Pam Lemons, or any of our other consultants that work. That would definitely be my number one answer. But I think I think there's frameworks for sure. I think there's I don't think there's like do this drill and you'll become grittier. And, and you know this is the only way to solve. It. I don't think we're going to get to prescriptive level like that. But I do think that these are the framework things that we know about elite athletes and things that have helped develop both in athletics and in other walks of life. Um, that have helped athletes come over there. We know around um, aspects of what, you know, supportive environments. We know aspects in sort of challenge points um, and, and, and what things help develop grip. I think there's a reasonable level of research out there. So I don't think it's too hard to, to think that at some point in the future, uh, we will provide a frameworks around, I wouldn't say how to develop, you know, a psychological aspect, but how to coach in a holistical sense that's taking into consideration the uh, technical, tactical uh, aspects you're trying to achieve while also creating an environment that's also developing some of the psychological pieces that you, you develop. I think that's 100% should be in our wheelhouse. I think there's, there, there, we'll get to pieces like that relatively shortly, whether it will explicitly say this is you know, designed to develop these, these psychological properties. I don't know if it will be explicit like that, certainly think in the environments we create, the drill progressions we, um, 
we we utilize the debriefs reflection processes um, and let's say the coaching science because that's a massive area that, that we kind of recommend the athletes we will therefore to help those athletes develop some of the psychological characteristics that we're looking for. And so, yeah, I, I, I think it's 100% needs to be weaved in there, um, but maybe not in, in the reductionist theory that this drill creates grit or resilience or whatever, you know, growth mindset, whatever we're looking for. I don't think it's that simple. I think it's about looking at the, the entirety of the coaching program and the environment that you're creating to uh, tease out or help develop those properties. You sent along, it's a data visualization. It's a, yeah, it's just an example. It's, it's just a data representation of, of results or world ranking over time. It's spent, it's just taking, taking this data and, and representing it um, in a chart formation. So my question is like knowing that, right? There's no beating mother nature here in that aging process. Like how much of that? It's a real simple question, I suppose, but complex in, in some ways. But, you know, you're like, okay, you have kind of a window to work with an athlete, right? And an athlete knows it's like, okay, here's my window. These are my sort of golden years to perform. How much did you guys think about that? It's like, okay, this athlete just turned 30. It's like, oh, you know, statistically, they're turning a corner. When I looked at this graph, it's like I was thinking, okay, well, what age does performance start to wane? And is the job of a high performance director to kind of eke out max performance in a certain window? Yeah. And you're kind of trying to beat Mother Nature in a way. I don't know. But I'm like, what should I glean from this? Yeah, I, I think it's, yeah, it's an interesting question. I, I think, number one, um, generally across sport, athletes are actually sustaining careers for longer. And, and, you know, regardless of what the sport is, whether it's, um, you know, Tom Brady in the NFL to, uh, you know, Keegan Randall to, to whoever it may be, there's, there's tons of athletes that are in their 30s and even in some sports in their 40s that are still producing really top level performance. So, and I think that's the trend as we're seeing athletes take better care of themselves, as we understand more aspects of coaching science as in sports with high injury rates, as we understand that um, we're, we're kind of uh, allowing athletes to maintain their careers um, for longer periods of time. And so I think, I think that, uh, that's one aspect. Number two, yes, there is a finite, there are not many, you know, 60 plus year old Olympic champions. There aren't any, um, it's particularly not in cross country. I think the, the oldest, I used to look at the cops uh, in rowing, who was in her, she was in her mid 50s, six time Olympian. Um, but, but there aren't many sports. So there's a finite window of an athlete's career. Um, and so I think every athlete understands that. And certainly as an organization, we, we, we understand that there's a finite piece to that. I don't think we use data in the sense that, wow, you're 30, you know, you're, you're no longer you know, going to be a top performer or whatever the age cutoff is. I think we, once athletes are performing at the top level, my, my job and the team's job is to, um, to help them sustain and maintain that for as long as they want to and can um, uh, do that. And, and how do we best support them? Um, because we care about them and we want them, if that's what they want, that's what we want for them. And we want to sustain that for as long as possible. Um, you know, there's, there is no beating 
mother time, father time, you know, just age does relate that. Right? Performance starts to drop um, at some point for most most athletes. Um, there's an, an, an understanding of that, but I don't think there's any age cutoffs where that happens, and I think we're defining them all the time. I think the way that we use those graphs is to more understand actually on the development processes um, to sort of look at the other end and see what is that steepness of that curve? How quickly does it drop off? How long does it plateau for? This is not a, there's no straight line A to B from, you know, 18 year old ranks, you know, a couple of hundred to, you know, 500 in the world to 26 year old Olympic champion. That is not a straight line. Um, we are very aware that there is variation and variability within that process. Um, you know, they have good years, they have bad years. But then we are also aware, and the, the graph shows you date plotting over time, that there is a trend downwards um, over time. You know, you can't probably plateau for three, four, five years as a 17, 18-year-old and expect that you'll be going to be an Olympic champion. It's unlikely, statistics and data will say, that that's not the most likely path. In fact, it's a highly unlikely path um, to do that. But there are variations within that. And that, I think that's how we look at those types of graphs to understand, okay, what's a typical progression? You know, what's a couple of standard deviations outside of normal? Um, are we on track? Um, are we making the progress? Are we adding the value uh, to the athletes to make their progress? Are they able to do that? Um, and sort of put that into context with how are they training? Um, you know, what's going on in their life? Are they in school? Is there a bunch of stuff going on? and trying to contextualize the data because data is useful. It, it helps inform us. I'm a big supporter of using data, um, but it's one piece. It's one piece of the puzzle, as is the psychological process, the physiological, the technical, tactical. Um, but it also doesn't lie. It's objective in terms of doing that. And so I think we look at it to try and understand, get a better picture of the progress of our athletes, um, to evaluate our programs as a whole. Are we, are we investing in the right areas, doing the right thing? Um, if this, you know, is the progress that, you know, every Olympic medalist or top 10 in the world or top 15 in the world athlete has done, and we're not doing this, is there something first we're not doing that we could do better? And also from the athlete side, from, yes, yeah, this is, uh, you know, it's not everyone's going to be an Olympic champion. It's, it's pretty tough, and that's, it, you know, I, it's, that's not, not nice for anyone, but the reality is it is competitive sport. Um, and not everyone is, is going to be able to fulfill those dreams. Um, and uh, we as an organization with our stated goals to, to you know, help athletes fulfill their dreams and, and get to podiums, be you know, really competitive on the world stage, um, you know, at some point that, that may not be trending for that athlete. And so we have to be aware of that um, and, and, and make decisions that are appropriate. Um, and I think we use it in, the, in that kind of, kind of sense. It's not a hard hard and fast, we only look at the data, but we understand the data in the context of the larger picture. So I think that's probably how we most utilize it um, to make the best informed decisions that we can. Right. Um, well, thanks for your time. Really appreciate it. Anything you want to add or I didn't ask? or I guess the, the only thing I haven't said that kind of relates the two between um, sort of the data and the side side is um, I think the, one of the biggest areas of growth for us not necessarily cross-country per se, but just, I think, U.S. kids snowboard and across sports that I see is effective practice design and how we actually help people learn quicker through coaching styles, through feedback mechanisms, um, sort of, you know, taking the data side that, that we have to make these improvements. There's only a finite length of time. And then there's this kind of how people process information and how we coach them 
um, to get the maximum amount of time um, or the maximum improvement in the limited time that we have. There's only so many training hours. Cross country has a lot um, of, of training hours compared to some of our sports. Um, but there's still a finite window and you can't go and cross country ski for 22 hours a day or whatever it may be. There's a finite period of time. And so how do we effectively coach? Um, what environments do we create? What problems do we uh, have for athletes to solve? Uh, how do we how do we work on that coaching science side? I think there's a huge massive area that kind of blends the psych side of it. It's, it's not traditional psych in in that, but but effective practice design is is my number one hot topic. I would say for us as an organisation within the science and medicine domain. From um, do we incorporate? You know, what type of feedback do we give? Um, do we ask the athlete maybe to self-reflect? before we give them feedback, how did they feel about that performance before we automatically show them the video? Or when we do give feedback, do we bandwidth it or do we scale it? How do we deliver those types of, of feedback um, through to, you know, do we practice aspects of retrieval learning and trying to get them to recall mental skills or tasks or, or, or movement patterns that they haven't done for a while. There's so much that I think the sort of learning world knows that we some of our best coaches innately do many of these things, but I think we could also reinforce them if we thought about them a lot more. Because, um, yeah, we want people to learn quicker. That's, that's what we want. Um, so how do we achieve that? Yeah, it's not just the passive accumulation of hours. Um, you know, we don't just, you know, yes, from a physiological side, like heartbeat to heartbeat, and you need yeah. to do that, in, particularly in cross-country skiing. Um, but the technical changes, the environment we create, and the coaching we give to make technical totally. changes, I think is a, a huge opportunity. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's good to hear. That's great. Um, okay. Well, thanks so much for your time. And uh, it was great talking to you. Appreciate your time. Thanks. Bye. Okay. Thanks for listening.